This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Sean Pattenden. With more than 7 million people in England on the NHS waiting list for treatment, alongside real-term wage decreases, overstretched ambulance services, impending strike action from nurses and a severely depleted workforce, what is the state of our NHS? And while we're now becoming accustomed to words like crisis, breaking point and on the brink being used in parallel to all conversation about our health service, will this winter and a massive shortfall in staff and resources really tip things over? How do we avert disaster? Today on The Bunker, I'm joined by health economist Anita Charlesworth to discuss what ails the NHS and how to help it make a full recovery. Anita is the Director of Research and Economics at the Health Foundation. She's Honorary Professor in the College of Social Sciences at the Health Service Management Centre at the University of Birmingham. And she's a trustee for Tommy's The Baby Charity and also for the Office of Health Economics. She was awarded a CBE in the Queen's 2017 Birthday Honours List for Services to Economics and Health Policy. Hello, Anita, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. Hello, thank you for having me. As mentioned, the word crisis is used alongside the term NHS almost daily. If we are already in crisis, how will it deepen over the next few months? It's important to think through a bit like um, climate change, if I may use the analogy. There are some really long-term slow burn issues which are underpinning a lot of the challenges we're facing in the NHS. And then rather like what happens in the climate, you then have the equivalent of an outbreak of forest fires that add to that pressure and really magnify and exemplify that. So we've got underlying issues, which are, if you like, the fault lines in our health system. And then we've added COVID into a system that was already under pressure. Obviously, the way we managed COVID was to divert a lot of care towards COVID and delay of lots of other services. And perhaps not surprisingly, we're finding that COVID is not over. It's entering a new phase that continues to put pressures on the health service. We're also getting lots of bugs that we didn't get for a couple of years, all coming at the same time. So there's lots of other infectious disease, particularly in children, going on and a lot of worry about flu. And then that's on the basis of a service that, if you like, has had a huge shock, has got out of its normal equilibrium and is finding getting back to its normal way of being really hard. I mean, people have been through, in many cases, the most incredible trauma. People work in healthcare to care for people. And at the height of COVID, they were, they were not able 
to save as many lives as they normally would. They found themselves dealing with this um, disease that they didn't understand. They worked incredibly hard to do that. And then they weren't able to deliver the care to other patients that they normally would do. That's an enormous uh, shock. And perhaps one of the challenges at the moment is we've almost got a mindset in discourse about the health service that says, well, it should be back to normal, should be back to how it was before. And actually, when you think about it you th- a bit, you think, well, how on earth was that ever going to happen? Also, the economics of it. So in real terms, nurses' wages have gone down by an estimated 20% over the last decade, according to research commissioned by the Royal College of Nursing. What does that do to the workforce also? I mean, undoubtedly, we face workforce uh, shortages. And we we did before the uh, pandemic. And there are two areas in particular that are real pressure points for staffing shortages. One is nursing. We've got, you know, around 40,000 vacancies for nursing. That's one in 10 uh, uh, posts. The other area is general practice. Yeah. And obviously, one of the things that's really important as well is that general practice services are the, the service that people use the most. And they are the gateway, if you like, to an awful lot of other care. So when they're under extreme pressure, you feel that the ripples of that across the whole system. And work that we've done at the Health Foundation suggests that actually over the rest of this decade, if nothing changes, then we're heading for a situation where one in four GP posts is unfilled. So the government knows that we haven't got enough GPs. Obviously, pay matters, and in particular with the cost of living crisis, pay matters even more to people. But the evidence is that pay is far from the only thing. Being able to do a good job and feel that you can do a good job is a really big part of what um, attracts people to uh, to these jobs uh, and what leads people to leave when they feel that they just can't do that and they're sat in the car park at the end of a shift crying. And lots of staff are, are reporting that kind of moral injury with their work. And it, it's actually really hard to buy people out of putting up with feeling that they're doing a bad job. So being feeling that you can do a good job is critical. And feeling valued really matters. And there are some really worrying things, particularly about staff from ethnic minorities with rates of, 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 of bullying. Work-life balance is also really important. And healthcare hasn't been great at that. Fundamentally, one of the problems is that despite the fact that the NHS employs over a million people, needs um, really skilled, really dedicated people People need to work in teams. People need to relearn as technology innovation happens. The NHS, actually, the government, has no plan and no strategy for the workforce. After the uh, Great Recession in 2008, when there was austerity and cost-cutting, one of the things that they did was cut nurse training places, which was a classic example of shaving a little bit of money in the short term. And then, hey, presto, we ended up spending vastly more on having to pay for agency bills to attract people in to cover rotors. There was a speech um, to the Confederation of British Industry where Rishi Sunak said, when it comes to the NHS, we all share the same ambition, to give everybody in the country the best possible care, free at the point of use. However, he has been reportedly registered with a private GP who charges £250 for a consultation. So how do his beliefs tally with what he does in regards to his own health? To be honest, whether he uses an NHS GP 
or goes for a private service isn't going to make a difference to whether all of us can access high quality healthcare today in five years time and in 10 years time. What really matters for that are the policy decisions that he makes. And I would say there that I think there are a number of things that really matter in the way that the government thinks about this. It is one of the deepest ironies in the NHS that the NHS this year is 74. Next year, it's its 75th birthday. So it's one of our most established institutions in our society that everybody supports, pretty much everybody. It's quite remarkable, the degree of, of, of public support on a sustained basis for the NHS. And yet we run it almost never thinking to the uh, uh, future. So, for example, we don't have a plan for how we're going to have the workforce we need. We don't have a plan properly for how we're going to have the physical facilities, the hospitals, the scanners, the GP practices that we need. We run the NHS almost week by week, if not day, day by day. That means that... Often we get caught out by not having the uh, capacity that we need, but also we get caught out because our population needs are changing. And this is getting really, really critical because over this decade that we're in, the number of people who are very elderly increases dramatically. So the number of people aged 85 or over is going to be a third higher in 2030 than just before the pandemic. The number of people in the last year of their life, which is a time when you need a lot of healthcare, is going to be a fifth higher. There's no plan for how we meet the needs of a very elderly uh, population, lots of people at the end of their life, people with multiple complex health problems, with dementia, needing a mix of very high intervention hospital care, but also social care. And if we think it's bad in the NHS... I mean, actually, social care is a really big problem. We've been talking about the need to invest in more prevention, diagnose illnesses early, engage in really proactive home-based care for people, join services up so we don't treat people as a body part, but a whole person for decades. And yet we know that problem. Actually, there's very little political dispute about the need to, to do all of that. It's quite remarkable how much agreement there is. And yet actually following through with the detailed, painstaking policy making process and attention to detail that's needed to, to, to change the services to make sure that they can manage with that just doesn't happen. And I think it's, we see that across a lot of government, don't we? And not just this government, all governments in the UK. We are quite bad at long-term decision-making. What I was going to ask is, we've had five health secretaries over four years, including one that's been had the role twice, Steve Barclay. Surely that swift turnaround and the liberal sacking of various experienced civil servants doesn't help with long-term planning? No, I don't think it does. And actually, it is quite interesting. Jeremy Hunt was the longest-serving Secretary of State And when he left, he wrote quite a lot and did podcasts um, to talk about some of his learnings from that experience. And one of the things that he talked about was really realising by the end of his time that you really needed as a Secretary of State to focus on the workforce because actually you could turn the money tap on comparatively easily. But actually, it was no good turning the money tap on if you couldn't turn that into doctors and nurses. Um, and quite often, you know, he'd find that policy ambitions were thwarted 
by not actually having the staff that we need we needed. Now he learnt that painfully after a number of years, and I think he's quite reflective of the fact that he, you know, he would have done things differently if he'd ha- understood that at, at, at the beginning. And it's interesting when he's become chancellor that he's announced in his first budget long-term planning for the workforce. Yeah, the three point three billion in each of the next few years that he's promised, um, and he made that during the annual statement. Um, Economists say that this won't account for the $2.5 in inflation and other unexpected cost pressures. But what is this $3.3 and how how does it work? Where does the money go? Or is it just a sticking plaster? Well, it is real money, yeah, Um, against the backdrop where, you know, (laughs) um, and it, it... yeah, mm, well, it okay. can, but it is actually, you know, because sometimes money's <laughs> I announced do wonder. and it turns out that, you know, it's a re-announcement mm. of something that might have been announced five times previously. This is real additional money. I think the challenge with this real additional uh, money is just the, the scale of the pressures in the system. So it's enough to cover the official pay award that's been made, but we've got industrial action. So in order to secure the workforce, the government does need to provide more um, money into the pay bill. Then there isn't headroom in, in, in this announcement. We need to be honest about how far this money will stretch. It's just about enough to meet some of the extra pressures that have come into the system if inflation is relatively short-lived and if we don't have a big extra pay bill. But what it isn't enough to do is to make massive inroads into that waiting list that you described of 7 million people. That's the waiting list for planned hospital care. We cannot spend that money several times over. So the NHS is getting more, but more is not the same as enough. And then it also hugely depends on luck. Just how will COVID evolve Will we have a horrible flu this winter? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jeremy Hunt has also tempered this gift of 3.3 million um, with the idea that all public services need to be joined to tackle waste and inefficiency, citing Scandinavian quality alongside Singaporean efficiency. What is the obsession with efficiency? Why is efficiency even on the table when it is really about getting people in jobs that are properly paid? So efficiency does matter, actually. And I would say, you know, we've had the NHS, as I said, for 74 years. I personally and my organisation would like to see us have a high quality health service for a good another 75 years. And it costs us all a lot of money. And, And more importantly than that, actually, for every pound that we spend inefficiently, actually someone get doesn't get treated as quickly or someone doesn't get access to a new therapy that could make a big difference to them. So actually, efficiency does matter. The other thing is, actually, a lot of the things that are inefficient in our health system are some of the banes of staff life. So, for example, if you look on social media, you will see doctors and nurses who are posting all the time about the half an hour it took them to try and log on to a computer that morning in order to be able to access patient information because the IT system is at the end of its functioning life. And actually, if you get, as may also happen, you know, you've got 10 staff in an oncology cancer meeting to review what needs to happen to a patient and they can't view the test results. Or actually, 
The machine was broken the day before when the patient was going for the critical scan that would mean, that would help them to judge actually the right way to manage that patient. That's wasted their time. That's put the patient then, where they've got to reconvene, through an immense amount of anxiety and suffering and delayed care. So efficiency is really important. So it's not about, and it shouldn't be, about saying to people, you need to work harder. That's not efficiency. That's exploitation. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What has Brexit done to the workforce and what's it continuing to do? Well, actually, quite interestingly, it hasn't led to an overall reduction in international workers. And we, and thank heavens, because we are so dependent in the NHS on international workers. Now, there's a whole ethical issue about, given the global shortage that there is, and there is a global shortage in doctors and nurses, about whether or not the UK, as one of the richest countries in the world, should be relying on staff, you know, where other countries have paid the education and training. So we definitely should be training enough so that even if people move between countries, which is a good thing because that's how we share knowledge, share experiences, and we all benefit, that we need to make sure that we're doing our bit globally to train our fair share, and we're not. Given where we are at the moment, we would be in one heck of a mess if we didn't have international uh, workers. What Brexit has done is change where those international workers come from. And actually, that matters less for us, but it does matter ethically for our responsibilities worldwide because it's meant that fewer of our workers are coming, international workers are coming from high-income countries, that's the rest of Europe, and more are coming from low-income countries. And some of those anxieties that we would have about whether it's ethically right that we're taking staff from countries that have... I mean, we, we don't think we've got enough doctors and nurses... Some of these countries have hardly any and they can afford to, to train their staff even less than, than we can. How do we compare to other European countries, though, in terms of spend per person? There are two different ways in which people tend to look at how you compare in terms of spending. One is to say, how much of our national income do we spend each year? So if, if as a nation we have £100, how much of that do we collectively devote to healthcare? We're not bad on that. We're slightly above the OECD group of sort of 36 middle to high income countries. And we're pretty similar to the sort of 14 countries that were in the EU before the fall of the Soviet Union. If you then say, well, what does that mean in terms of pound notes? How much money we actually spend? Yeah, then it's less. 
our GDP per head, our income per head is low. So we, um, in terms of pound notes, we spend about a fifth less than those 14 EU countries average. We spend a lot less than France and Germany, who both share, devote a bigger share of their national pie to health and their pie is bigger. So one of the things that is undoubtedly really important to understand is that if we're going to have a sustainable health service, we need to do two things. We need to become a very successful economy. Then we do need to prioritise healthcare as well. Every country got hit by the 2008, obviously, global recession. We were hit hard and we've struggled to uh, recover. So our health investment has lagged behind. And that's quite important because it isn't so much the decisions that the government's making now in isolation about the NHS, which is the, uh, the challenge. It's that those decisions and COVID come on the back of 10 years when funding just didn't keep pace with demand. So we, we were, we were no longer meeting any of the targets for cancer, for accident emergency, for plant care for, you know, before COVID. So we had a system that was on the edge prior to COVID and boy, oh boy, has COVID tipped it over. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So what are the NHS key priorities over the winter, i.e. the next six months? So one of the most important things at the moment is vaccination, vaccination, vaccination. Anyone listening to this podcast who is eligible for a COVID vaccine or a flu vaccine, please, please, please get yourself vaccinated. Get yourself vaccinated to protect yourself, to protect your family to protect your community and to protect the staff in the in the NHS, yeah? So trying to reduce the amount of infectious disease is really, really critical. In the run-up to Christmas, that really matters. Then the other thing that we nearly, nearly need to try to do is to improve what is horribly called flow. The regulator for healthcare describes the NHS at the moment as gridlocked. As people will have seen on the television, may have experienced themselves. Yeah, big problems at the moment to being able to get in the front door of our system, being able to get access to a GP, to be able to get an ambulance. And when the ambulance comes, being able to get into the A&E. And this really matters. It is affecting um, outcomes. And there are some heartbreaking examples. The big problem with that is actually the back door that what we've got is an awful lot 
of our hospital capacity with um, people in hospital who are medically fit to leave hospital but still need some care and they need that care at home. And that care needs to come from a mix either of NHS staff like community nurses, occupational therapists and others and social care staff. And there's a shortage of that care. So what we're desperately trying to do, and the reason why the Chancellor actually gave money to social care and for discharge is to get that flow moving again and to get people who would be better off in their homes with the right care and to get our system able in the winter to get people through much faster. Anita Charlesworth, I have learned so much from this already in a few minutes thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today thank you for having me and for those listening there's a new edition of the bunker every morning so please do subscribe and back us on patreon just search bunker podcast patreon for extra goodies from just three pounds a month thank you for tuning in see you next time the bunker daily was presented by sean pandon the lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>